Hello and welcome to the, oh, here's a tough one. What episode is this? <laughs> uh, sixth? I was going to say five? Three zots, um, three zots understanding Superman adventures, and then this is six. Right. Okay. Well, welcome to the sexy sixth issue. <laughs> one sensational huh i think we already i maybe i said scintillating last time Uh, or uh, during the second episode whichever one it was you know alliteratively relevant for Mm -hmm. but anyways this is indeed the sixth episode of what is this called again got the runs yep that's right (laughs) you got it Uh, it's been a, it's been a hot minute since we've recorded an episode. Uh, we took a little an extended holiday break, you might say, uh, but we're back in the saddle. Uh, I, I you know what I realized is that when the first episodes come out, they're going to be so dated. Are they? Why? Do we make well, references to things? Well, we talk about the Boss Baby two trailer for one. Well, or was that, yeah, or was that <laughs> I, a think, separate I think that's a. <laughs> That's a Patreon special in which we acknowledge that it's going to be <laughs> coming out right. like four months after the trailer. <laughs> that's an exclusive bonus episode. So that's a little bit of a tease for the Patreon. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, what's what's the content on the Patreon right now? Is it just uh, the Boss Baby 2 trailer reaction? I think so. I mean, we could theoretically bump the Gumby episode over there, but I think we promised it to the people. So yeah, no spoilers. Um, but yes, this is indeed got the runs it's a podcast about those things you love to flip through <laughs> but not for long yeah oh, Scott McLeod scroll through i think you mean it's it's where we work through these infinite canvases we call comics oh. <laughs> <laughs> um of course last week we talked about understanding comics a real what a great a great episode a great comic just Everyone's firing on all cylinders, and now, I f- well, I feel like I'm coloring the episode right now, which I don't want to, but we now have Reinventing Comics, which is, in some ways you could call it a sequel, in some ways you could call it nothing to do with it at all. It's certainly a spiritual uh, sibling. He's ruminating on the same ideas, albeit in what feels like a, a very different manner. So... Should we? Where should we start? Should we get caught up with Scott right now? Oh, I suppose so. It's two thousand. It so is we've entered the Y two K. That's major. He yes. does make reference to Y two K in the comic slash references the year as being the year two thousand several times. Yes. Um. So Scott, he basically he describes it in the introduction to the book. Um, well, let's, let's just get this started right out of the gate. This book is not available digitally. Yeah, which is hilarious. (laughs) Uh, A big part of our extended delay was because we both had to order physical copies and have them shipped to us, which took like a week. Because it's also, it's not like out of print per se, in that, like, it's easy to find. I I assume you found it as easily as I did. Uh huh. It like you can get it off Amazon and like it ships yeah. with Prime, but it's not sold by Amazon and it's not like yeah, it's not like in print per se, but it's easy to find. Um Yeah. But yeah, given how much of this he spends on 
like the exciting future of digital comics delivery. <laughs> the fact that I had to wait four days for my copy to show up in the mail is yeah. very rich with irony, shall we say. Yes, well, we'll get into a lot of Scott's future predictions and how those uh, did or didn't pan out. Um, the one thing I will also note is that I was looking on his website because he makes frequent allusions oh, yeah. to his website. Don't waste none your time. Of, <laughs> none of which you can find. Yeah. So like, there's, there's some like the creator bill of rights is on there and stuff like that. But yeah, he, he has all kinds of footnotes that are like, check out my website for oh, more this, on this. This book um, is footnote city, baby. Uh, I, I haven't checked out too many of the other links, but I feel pretty confident hazarding a guess that like most of the web comics that are cited as well, if he wants to go and find those uh nothing oh i went to uh i went to one of the sites he alludes to (laughs) artcomic.com did you go to that i didn't but i did go to (laughs) mp3.com which he also alludes to (laughs) you should you should go to art comic right now all right give me one second have a a look right off the bat you can really see exactly uh what we're working with here wow it does look like this hasn't been updated since 2000 Adobe Flash I, I believe Player is blocked. RIP is the last, uh, the last mention or the last updated thing I found. Oh yeah, I mean you can go and see for yourself, but there's really there's a lot to consume here. Yeah, it's, there sure is. It's really a lot. The daily comics are also shocking. <laughs> um, I don't think that uh, the Fairfax County Water Authority still uses. His website design it looks a little more modern now but <laughs> but as i was saying there's a bit of a, a mention in the introduction where scott says he, he describes it as a honeymoon i think since after understanding comics yes. came out where he I'm, I'm not really sure of the historical context here maybe you can elucidate a little bit but um he, he sort of mentions basically that it took five years for his ideas to catch on is basically what he says. No, no. He says it or takes, the, it takes five years attention. for people to start like criticizing the work. Um, oh. So that's where like I think in the Understanding Comics episode, I made some allusions to a, like a Dylan Horrocks piece that I read uh, that like kind of grapples with some of the conclusions that he presents. Um, so the Comics Journal did like a whole... Um, like understanding comics issue basically in I think in 99 um, where Gary Groth who is kind of like the curmudgeonly godfather of the comics journal just like pulled pulled together everyone he could find who had like some some critical response to it and basically like packed the whole issue full of uh, of responses to understanding comics so I'm pretty sure the Dylan Horrocks stuff that I read was from that issue um the comics journal like archive is paywalled, so uh, I haven't read most of what's published there or the uh, also infamous <laughs> reinventing comics takedown issue. Oh, but uh, but yeah, Gary Groth and Scott McCloud uh, contend over a lot of the conclusions that he includes in both books. Interesting. Uh, yes, we will get into said conclusions shortly. Um, so yeah, I think we can start by sort of talking about the format here because. At first glance, if you just like open this and flip to a random page, I think it would very much come across as a sequel to Understanding Comics. It's in the same style where it's Scott's avatar uh, talking to the reader. He's mm-hmm. got his checked shirt and his lightning bolt. Oh, wait, we need to talk about the cover as well. Well, but, yes, uh, and, and I will know also he is drawing himself as various objects and... Uh... <laughs> 
<laughs> and people throughout and uh, causing me to laugh and think of how you might be reacting to it. In particular, uh, he like draws himself onto like a Renaissance painting of like a nude woman oh, yeah. reclining and then credits the artist <laughs> as this person, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That was good. That bit will always be funny. Uh, I do like the design of D. Scott. He sort of gives himself dimples on the cover, I noticed, <laughs> uh, which I think oh, is I cute. Don't, uh, do we have the same cover? I don't really see that I on have, mine. I have the purple cover. Uh, the, I, I have the one where he's camera. got like the six arms. Six arms? Yeah. Okay, that's the one I wanted to talk about. Wow, you got that one? That's, yeah. Oh, I don't care for that. So hold on. Uh, who's, who's the publisher for yours? Uh, let me have a look here. So the inside cover, like the first page, basically, the first paper page, it yeah. has the same thing where it's him with the six arms. Yeah, as does mine. Um, but this is the first perennial edition published 2000, HarperCollins. Okay, so mine is the 2001 perennial edition. Printed in Canada? Mm, yep. So, oh, so my version is actually the original version? Oh, no, mine is a first perennial edition. So you must just have the... <laughs> Like the direct market cover or something. <laughs> or, yeah, or something. I don't know. Limited Very collector's strange. edition. So wait, describe your cover. So my cover, it's it's purple. Uh -huh. um, it says reinventing comics and then the evolution of an art form is sort of the subtitle. And it's it's basically, I would say, a staircase of panels depicting various things, none of which are really directly germane to the comic itself. Like there's a hand writing or drawing there's a key being dropped from one hand to another. There's a plane landing. There's a car. There's a railroad tunnel. There's a cloud with lightning. And Scott seems to be running down the staircase. Right. He's like dancing down the stairs, I see. Yes, he's having... He's sprightly. He's alighting on his this, feet. This kind of reminds me of the original Understanding Comics cover as well. Yes, I know. Yes, there, there are definitely some similarities there. Um, and then... But yes, more importantly... The, you have the other uh, cover, uh -huh. which is Reinventing Comics, How Imagination and Technology are Revolutionizing an Art Form, where it's Scott as sort of like a, a yogi. Uh, yeah. Is it, is it fair to call this Hindu-inspired? I think it is, yes. But yes, he's, he's sitting cross-legged. He has six arms, and he is holding various symbols made out of purple energy. The symbols <laughs> that uh, correspond that, that he to, uses, yeah, in the book yes, to the, his twelve revolutions, which we'll yes. get into. Um, but yes, I this, <laughs> and also the background is just like it's like he's in like the Jedi archives. He's in like, <laughs> yes, he's in a place of infinite space, and the walls are lined with different yeah. symbols, or like the Matrix like white room before he calls in instead of like every gun right. that's ever symbols, existed lots of symbols. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah you don't care for this cover i gather um no i, I like i like when he has the six arms i don't okay. really care for him uh for scood descending a staircase oh i see Yes. Um, because I think it's just a little boring, and he only has two arms in it. Yes, I agree. <laughs> that would be my chief criticism <laughs> of, the, of my cover. Two arms only, only two arms. Do you at least have his like uh, evolution diagram on the back cover? On the back cover, I have... Wait, what do you mean evolution diagram? So mine oh, at like, the like very top has like... Ape Scott? <laughs> yeah, Ape Scott. I think that's in the comic. Like, it is. Up to like Neanderthal Scott, and then like pipe-smoking human Scott. No, I have... 
purple cube of symbols, hmm. um, crazy wheel of symbols. For some reason, there's a picture of Scott in color, and he's saying, in a digital environment, comics can take virtually any size and shape as the temporal map, comics conceptual DNA, grows in its new dish. Hmm. Like, that's, it's just a panel. <laughs> and, like, why would that be the panel you chose to hide? Like, that's certainly interesting once you read the comic, but, like, why would that be what you choose to highlight on the back cover? And then, you know, it's mostly just Frank Miller, Will Wright, Neil Gaiman, all giving uh, positive comments about it. Of, oh, of, under, or of review, or, um, reinventing comics or of understanding comics? I think... It it is they are reinventing comics because mine um, perhaps tellingly <laughs> just reprints the positive praise for uh, understanding comics. No, but then see, okay, so I think there. I guess I just don't have the proper publishing information because on here it says Scott McCloud is the award winning creator of Zot the Sculptor and Understanding Comics. So this must have oh. come out within the last like ten years yeah, or whatever, like a less than that. The Sculptor is from twenty fifteen. Oh, really? I thought it was from 2012. So maybe this is like a new edition and it just doesn't have an updated copyright page or something? Yeah, maybe. Um, before we dive into the contents, since we're already talking about editions, I read a funny thing on his website <laughs> where he said that the... So I, ha I was trying to figure this out a little bit, but I guess the original printing was put out under like a dc imprint and like technically yeah. was paid for by dc which he like also acknowledges in um the the book itself yes he alludes to that um so on his website he says apparently that the original printing ran with like a disclaimer from dc like corporate that was like we disagree with many of the conclusions <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh you don't like when he talks about creators rights <laughs> yeah or, or just like he really rips on superheroes a lot in this he does, um, uh, he does go in on superheroes a little bit I think, you know, it's it's understandable given sort of where he, it seems like he's being drawn artistically at this point, but mm -hmm. it's, especially since he is sort of like, yeah, I like superheroes, like, you know, they're cool for what they are. He does, he does, he uses them as sort of a, a scapegoat or an emblem of sort of where the comics industry is at at the time. And maybe we can talk a little bit about that because he does, this comes out at a very interesting time like just in history yeah uh, and like yeah it does <laughs> because what he he alludes directly to this in the book but sort of the the comics speculation or the comics boom of the 90s which i'm sure you can talk a little more about mm -hmm. has sort of come and gone um the dot-com bubble <laughs> is <laughs> like, like not quite burst but yeah this, it's but cd-rom technology <laughs> oh man so when you started talking about like those crazy cd-roms i was like what are you talking <laughs> oh, about when i it's saw like... the like art of mist in there i was like whoa <laughs> haven't thought about mist in some time yeah i mean this is also uh this is also a pre 9 11 text i will yeah, say uh... which i feel like almost comes across in some of when he's talking about like race and gender it's like Wow, you have a surprisingly nuanced take. What happened in like the ten to fifteen years <laughs> what, what intervening? Happened in and I was the, like, hmm, intervening eleven months. <laughs> yeah, and then I was like, oh wait, that's what happened. <laughs> and then there was just like a massive cultural regression, I guess. Yeah, um, I, I slash like also just the I I mean it 
lots of his technology predictions came true but even still when i was reading about like who knows what could derail technology's development i was like who indeed in <laughs> december 2000 knew scott yeah i mean i think his uh again we'll get into it in a bit but his future predictions are very interesting and often extremely on point yes um, but also i i don't know if it's quite 50 50 but it's funny that for everyone that he's like very prescient there's another one where it's like uh that's either simply like didn't happen or like yeah it it was interesting between the two parts to see the extent to which the things that he's like there's so much room to grow in comics here and like nothing has happened (laughs) in the intervening 20 years or very little and then the second half where he's like here's where i see digital like everything going yeah. and it's like, like here's some of be the it, fate of computing and online commerce yeah and then some of it is like that's exactly what happened some of it was like you couldn't have been more wrong <laughs> it's just yeah yeah it's, it's interesting there's a there's a lot of a lot of prediction going on here um but yeah so like we were saying this this isn't really a sequel to understanding comics i would characterize this as like a book long they do it is called a manifesto on yeah the cover, a manifesto is the right word for it it, it, it is a manifesto <laughs> or like a long form essay on basically just like the future of comics mostly through the prism of like capitalism and the internet indeed uh yeah it, yeah it's it's I I in some ways understand why this is kind of the one that like nobody talks about because he's wrestling with ideas that in some ways it's like this is a book for like comics professionals like it's not really accessible I I don't find at least to like a lay person yeah I wonder I wonder who he's like trying to reach here because it is really similar to understanding comics where like he's like breaking everything down and like putting it in like a way that a person who isn't super into comics can understand, which or is definitely computers. part of his <laughs> yes, <laughs> which is definitely part of his mission statement. But at the same time, it's like, why should we be interested in this? I guess even as like a person who's into comics, I'm like, well, that's you certainly have some interesting thoughts on this. I'm like, <laughs> I like hearing from you. Um, I will also say, just because you mentioned it as the one that no one reads, I was look when I was looking on his website under like his bibliography page. Basically, mm-hmm. it's like. I think it's like Zot the sculptor making comics, understanding comics are like like spotlighted and have like little blurbs, mm-hmm. and then underneath it's like other printed work that I've published. <laughs> and it's like reinventing comics. Well, yeah, and I think reception at the time, like I don't think he had a lot of people in his corner when this came out for a lot of different reasons. Um, because like I, I alluded to the the comics journal had like basically like a reinventing comics like hit piece uh, issue uh, where the leading article was by Gary Groth and titled uh, Scott McLeod. Oh, no, McLeod Cuckoo Land <laughs> the title of the article. <laughs> and it is like basically just Gary Groth being like, here's why everything that Scott McCloud says in reinventing comics is wrong. Apparently like webcomic people were not fans of it either because they, I think they, his, his perspective would be they kind of put words in his mouth a little bit or assumed that he was drawing conclusions that he wasn't drawing about like lack of challenges that a webcomics creator would face that 
uh, uh, like more traditional print comics creator wouldn't or, or would rather. Yeah, I think the main thing that sort of comes into play is that like he just didn't quite have the right idea on like where the internet was going to go in terms of commerce especially and so his ideas like and in some ways his ideas like hit the nail on the head in terms of sort of decentralizing things but then in other ways his sort of concepts are just a little off base yeah i think in particular like the commerce stuff we can talk about a bit more in that chapter but i do think it's like it almost feels naive to read it now and look at the role that like corporations play in like how business is done on the internet and and like how the middleman model kind of like is is present even though his whole vision for why the internet is going to be good for comics is like there is no middleman but even like yeah just the whole the whole infinite canvas thing like i i have a lot of i don't want to say issues with cuz i i don't like feel strongly about it but i'm confused by the the potential that he sees in it i guess anyways we can we can get into that when we get to that section of the book but why don't we dive in yeah um i will say like the the over the overriding feeling i get from this book is that like scott seems to be like a very like it's like a very specific kind of geek who like sort of came of age or like not not came of age but sort of was there for the internet revolution and was like very excited about all the possibilities of that yeah and was like in on the ground floor yeah and then simultaneously is into like comics and other stuff and like looks at everything through this sort of new paradigm of like what the internet can be and like in some ways the internet is like way crazier than those people ever could have predicted but it's also mm-hmm. like it's just very like the the hamster dance. <laughs> Allow me to introduce the hamster dance to the discussion. Like the uh, it's just like it's just not like wild west anymore, which I feel like is very much how it was at that time where it was like you had like the more corporate like AOL or whatever that were very much like sort of buttoned up and maybe didn't quite understand the nature of the internet and then you had these other websites which were just like total chaos <laughs> like, it could be anything and i feel like they tended to see the internet more in that light and then it maybe became more about the corporations just sort of, sort of like getting wise to the language and presentation style of the internet right but yes yeah, so let's dig in um oh i i do also want to mention uh it actually got mentioned in the comic did you read uh porphyria's lover <laughs> Uh, I didn't read that one, but I did go to look at several of the the particularly like the daily improvs on his website. Um, we're referencing like Scott McLeod's web comics that are all available on scottmcleod.com. And I was looking a little bit at um, the Zot digital comic, trying to decide if we should uh, cover it or not. Yeah, I looked at like one page of that. What did you think of it? Uh, the art looks awful. <laughs> the yeah, art it, looks dreadful. I don't understand why it looks like I think, that. I think he must have been using a new software or something. Because um, it I honestly guess, looks yeah. like, not like it was done in paint, but like, I'm not sure if it's that it's so low res or, but yeah, it, it clearly wasn't done with like a traditional um, like pencil and ink. Uh, like Yeah, it, it was, because he talks about at the, he talks about in the book how like, he has yeah. for years he says used a wacom tablet and pen to draw his art so, yeah like, you it, wouldn't think that there would be a connection there but maybe it's the coloring or something. i was gonna say it looked to me like he was doing the line art in color 
but it looks it looks like it was drawn with like the ms paint pencil tool like you can see every single pixel right. <laughs> it, it looks bad <laughs> there is also a funny moment when he's talking about uh porphyria's lover where he's like it might be confusing but wait for the whole image to load which <laughs> <laughs> is just like that's just cute uh, yeah, there is a lot of talk about the challenges <laughs> presented by having to wait for images to load. <laughs> yeah, just like lack of processing power, which and to his credit, he does like very cogently say like this won't be a thing in five years. Yeah. Or, like, things will be very different as time goes on. But yes, so he refers to this as a manifesto for radical change. Um, he sort of says, and I agree, or doesn't he doesn't say it outright, but he certainly implies it through some of the things he says that this is a much messier and much less commercially viable book than understanding comics yeah it's it's definitely like he took all the clout (laughs) that he built up from understanding comics and was like and now here's my like crazy ideas about everything (laughs) yeah and it's like Part of me is like, why is this a comic? But then that also feels very much in line with Scott's philosophy because he's like, right. comics is a medium. Like, yeah, he, his question would be like, why Why shouldn't it be a comic? Why shouldn't anything be a comic, basically? Yeah. But then you get the result where it's like, so much of it is just like long stretches of text. Like there's one specific part I'm thinking of where like there is... A, a what looks like a panel but it's just full of text <laughs> this is i i would say this is or it feels textier on uh, like a whole even than understanding comics which was I'd be pretty very texty. interested to see a word count comparison between understanding yeah. comics and this just because like all the all the um caption boxes feel very full all the word balloons feel very big like I don't, maybe it's maybe it's not that different from understanding comics but it definitely feels wordier yes and so much of understanding comics is like i'll show you an illustration of a thing and then i will talk to you about that thing and like whatever relevance it might hold whereas with this it's more that the illustrations are accompaniment for the words yeah they don't um they don't like interact in the same way all the time right exactly because you know he's just talking about ideas and stuff but yeah, so basically, I, I don't even quite know how I like we would talk about this in a sequential way, because I'm not totally sure of how, like, I just read it, and I'm not <laughs> sure I could tell you how it's structured. I, I, I think it's structured pretty clearly. He has an idea of 12, like... Uh, the 12 revolutions. Yeah, 12 revolutions, or basically areas that he sees as um, having a lot of potential for growth for comics uh as as a medium and they are comics as literature comics as art creators rights industry innovation public perception institutional scrutiny gender balance minority representation diversity of genre and then the three digital ones which are here somewhere um it's it's like digital digital delivery digital creation uh and and then just like digital um digital comics which the the distinction between like digital production and digital comics i guess yeah i guess it would be sort of like formatting versus just like tools to yeah. create comics i i don't um, know that i would have made that much of a distinction between them but but he does well the thing is he's really into 
sort of like how comics can completely be transformed by the digital reality right. which just there could be sound which is <laughs> uh, oh but you're forgetting comics could be a cube and that's that's true uh, uh, but like we'll we'll get into it but yeah just anyways the he, last chapter where he talks about sort of what comics could look like in the future and how the digital and like the nature the immateriality of the internet <laughs> i could see you laughing i know but i'm trying not to make of whichever one of us has to edit it have to silence me laughing <laughs> okay so turn away while i continue to talk about this um so <laughs> i just can't get over <laughs> comics could be a cube <laughs> that's literally what it is that's what the last chapter is he's like like now that comics aren't like a book that you have to pick up with threads they can be anything and one of his ideas is like it could be a cube and it's just like okay but that's that's true (laughs) like it's even today in 2020 no one is stopping you from making a comic that is a cube but that's and that's what i'm talking about with like the sort of like the 90s geek sensibility where it's just right. like there's limitless possibility like, with this it is the, like the definition of like he's so concerned with if we could he's not bothering to yes. ask if we should <laughs> very much so um but yes but we'll we'll dig into that yes later. anyway anyways the, the structure of the book is that he presents those the 12 revolutions and then he groups them together in ways that i think do make a lot of sense yes. so that he can talk about them without having to give each one their own chapter and kind of connect some of the ideas cogently which he he describes as like uh, sort of rushing through this stuff because he finds the last three like the digital stuff more interesting and he's like in retrospect has kind of been like uh, i was sort of in a hurry to like get to the <laughs> get to the good stuff and didn't maybe like give this the first half of the book the um yeah or you know it's it's probably i think it's probably like how much of it would you say is it like 75 25 i i don't he he does describe 60, it as two 40. halves but let so, me let me dive in because it's but yes a significant portion of the book is devoted to specifically yeah it is about half actually yeah it's it's 125 pages for the the first nine and then probably about a hundred and uh, about a hundred pages 100 and, 115 for the for the last uh, digital three, stuff which yeah. are all the digital related ones but yes so he starts with is it he sort of groups literature and art together yeah basically like uh comics deserves to be taken seriously is the thesis of these two yes and sort of that um that like artistic value can exist in comics and uh yes the big thing he sort of talks about is how in the past no one really perceived comics as sort of an artistic pursuit. You have the his story about how co- the guy who says comics are vaudevillians. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was Rube, Rube Goldberg, Goldberg. <laughs> of course, famous for his machines. I didn't even realize that he was like a cartoonist. I didn't either. Um, he seems like an interesting guy, certainly. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because I think I think the machines were sort of like shown in comics where it's like, isn't this funny? And then that sort of just became like his yeah his thing his legacy 
Yes, his legacy, certainly. But yes, and so basically, this is like sort of like a Will Eisner fanfic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I, f- I found this section interesting because this, uh, I'll probably say this about pretty much every chapter, but it's funny the extent to which this is still a dynamic in comics 20 years later. Yes, that's one of the big things I wrote down, which is like, his the first nine revolutions seem to have barely moved forward in the last 20 years since he wrote this. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I, I find it funny that here, like, uh, Eisner popularizing the term graphic novel is like, a, a, you know, kind of one of one of those things that like all the big comic geeks in your life can probably tell you. But I, I just find the discourse around it so interesting, particularly because later on, he tells that story about going on the NPR show. And the host talking about how, like, these days, people don't appreciate when you call them comic books. They prefer graphic novels. And I find, like, now, at least the, like, online discourse in the places that I go, like Reddit or, like, the CBR forums, if someone comes in and is really like, actually, I prefer to call them graphic novels, they'll get, like, absolutely roasted. And, like, the common sentiment is, like, graphic novel is what people who are embarrassed to read comic books call it. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think I think that 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 feels like a sort of broader cultural thing more recently where sort of people found different ways to heighten like I mean like it's in movies, it's in comics, it's in whatever. I I have most clearly remember it from uh Family Channel original TV show Radio Free Roscoe when uh, one of the characters wanted to show how like hip and with it he was he uh, had himself being filmed reading a graphic novel i think that was the first time i heard the term graphic novel and was like oh what remember the episode where <laughs> one of the characters makes himself into like a female advice columnist yes miscommunication <laughs> oh of course, of course i communication. remember um, anyways that's a joke just for us <laughs> yeah uh Tune into our uh, Patreon exclusive Radio oh, Free Roscoe uh, episode by episode watch. That would actually be good. There can't I don't be know that if, many. I don't know if you can find the, <laughs> those episodes can. anywhere. Uh, but we'll work on that. Yeah. Um, um, but yes. Yeah. But, so yes. But the, uh, I, let me let me talk. Yes, um, please do. <laughs> but yes, sort of the idea that there was an some sort of effort in the past to elevate things to make them sound important which is sort of what he's talking about where it's like comics as literature comics as art where it's like these things deserve to be taken seriously etc etc and i think now that everyone takes them more seriously people are sort of backtracking a little bit and being like well like we don't need to like use our own special words and have our own like special way that we look at things and look down on people who don't see it that way like we should just appreciate the art form for what it is. Yeah, I, I think the dynamic that he describes in this chapter is still very much alive and well, where for every person, like, I, I don't think necessarily the people who think that comics do deserve to be taken seriously would be like strong advocates for calling them graphic novels as like a general right. broad whole. Like, I think that term has a, a technical definition. Yes, it's become more specific and yeah. like, it means something. It's where not a genre. It has value, yeah, but like using it in place of comic i don't think anyone is like arguing for that i don't think that scott was <laughs> arguing for that yeah it's not called reinventing graphic novels exactly um but i do think that the backlash to it to an extent is still 
sort of aligned with the sentiment he's describing where people are like, okay, like it's comics. Like we don't, we don't need to take it that seriously. Like it's still, and this speaks to the extent to which superheroes are still dominant, but like people would say like, it's still basically like power fantasies about guys wearing skin tight clothing, like beating up on each other and like, you, you know. Yeah. And a big part of that, I'm sure is sort of, it, it feels like a back, uh, not a backlash or sort of a response to the gritty realism or like deconstructionist how is how he puts it when he's talking about Alan Moore and Frank Miller's like eighties and nineties work. Um, I think it's more of a response to that and sort of the self seriousness of that, which maybe wasn't even always there in the original work, but has sort of been co-opted by a certain group of comics fans. I think that's more what people are responding to. Yeah, I yeah, I do think there's a bit of that because as much as those are like still well-regarded books today and and have plenty of supporters and defenders including me, <laughs> um there's definitely a vocal contingent that's sort of like comics should be fun, like superheroes should be fun. Um kind of like uh, I've I've waxed plenty poetic about like the the hope and optimism that like Superman or Spider-Man uh represent. Uh, and like I think there's a place for that as well but I think yeah that people really get drawn to that um and and do sort of feel that inclination to um push back against that yeah that self-serious bent yeah and I think like so yeah as always my sort of comparison point is movies and there's sort of the idea of vulgar auteurism which is sort of that we should be like looking at people like Michael Bay who have a very distinctive style and create like, and like are clearly very influential in terms of both their movies and sort of how their movies affected and filmmaking as a whole, that we should be looking at them with the same level of sort of intellectual interest that we look at, you know, art films. And I think that's more what it's about, at least for me and for, I assume you as well, like it's more about elevating the more simple things or the more, you know, the low status things up to the level of a watchman or something else that is is deserving of intellectual consideration rather than it is pulling something like that back down to the level of like, this isn't interesting, it's comics. Yeah, yeah, I do think that that is largely the case. I think there's kind of also a, a degree to which... um there's like a, a like cultural theory that I'm going to look up the name of quickly. Okay, and while you do that, I can talk about um, one thing I wanted to pick your brain about, which is that, so at some point, Scott says um, that we haven't seen the great American graphic novel yet. And I was wondering if you agreed with that, because I feel like at this point, I think Watchmen is sort of the touchstone for a lot of people. And like that may, maybe could be considered the great American graphic novel. And I was wondering how you felt about that. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think that the great American graphic novel exists because like, I also don't think that the great American novel, which is right. like the concept he's, he's alluding to exists. Um, it's, it's like a platonic ideal, not, uh, not necessarily something that I think you can actually get any consensus on. So, yeah, I, I mean, like, I think that certainly, like, kind of by acclamation or by consensus, Watchmen would certainly be, like, the great superhero comic. Mm -hmm. 
but but even then like there's pl- uh, plenty of you can always find detractors for anything um, yeah, oh, yeah, and certainly, certainly watchman is no exception but yeah i mean i think he's right but only in so far as that like the great american graphic novel will never be written because the like the canon doesn't exist like that anymore yeah that's that's true i suppose but i i think more what he's talking about is sort of like a piece of like great you know like war and peace or like yeah i mean i think mouse would have that locked up pretty he does pretty he does love his mouse as far yeah as as far as like the the crossover to being taken seriously as like a genuinely valuable piece of american literature i think mouse is the clear answer there and i think i think there are other candidates you could put forward but in terms of like cultural permeation and and awareness and like critical acceptance and acclamation yeah i I would have to say mouse is the one yeah um and cultural theory yeah so uh, it's sturgeon's law that i was thinking of which is 90 percent of everything is crap and which i think is like generally true and that the the way people gravitate to certain things or away from certain things speaks more to like what kind of crap they enjoy as opposed to like the absence of crap in any given medium or or genre so like i i'm not here trying to say that like no actually 70 percent of comics are good and most of them are superhero comics it's just like i like the crap that is superhero comics and superhero movies and it just it feels to me like scott doesn't think that that's true or doesn't think that that has to be true and and envisions a world where like maybe not a hundred percent of all comics are good, but like he would say like oh you could have like thirty percent of comics be good, you could have like forty percent of comics be good, and I just like don't really think that that's true, at least like not in a way that uh, it's it's kind of the reverse of what we were just saying about how like everything has its critics, also like everything has its fans, yes. um, and and I just don't think that. I think he has a very optimistic vision of comics where there will be some sort of like more universal appeal to them um, that, that I just don't, yeah, I don't think is necessarily there. Yeah. I, he, he is also, he's very into the idea of sort of this like platonic ideal of an artist, like a person who sort of has, especially for comics, because it's so much like a unification of different disciplines in terms of, you know, being the written word and drawings and stuff like that. Um, He has like very much this idea of an artist who sort of has this uncompromised vision and is able to use their talents to like create a whole body of work in that way. And maybe if you're Scott McCloud and like you made Zot and you made understanding comics, like it's easier to like think of it that way and be like, why couldn't there be like a thousand people like me who are like each like reinventing the genre or the medium in their own special way? But <laughs> I don't think that there are, th- well, maybe a thousand, but I don't think there are like, I don't think you can get to the point where every person who works in comics is a Scott McCloud. Yeah, I, I found it interesting because in this, in reinventing comics, he kind of disowns the, um, the chapter of understanding comics about art or like what it, like the definition of art and what an artist is where that's the that's the section where he has like the caveman um who like is like tapping on a rock and he's like it doesn't accomplish anything but he's doing it anyways and like therefore like that's the essence of art right um but i thought it was interesting because 
in that section, he kind of made his argument that it's it's not fair or realistic to expect a true artist, quote unquote, to exist because of like the reality of needing to sustain yourself and and like make a living. Like he's got that page that where he basically like bashes the idea that um, real art. Uh, I I'm I'm forgetting like the exact context, but basically he suggests that like real art is going to or or important art, I guess is the terminology he uses. Mm. He's like important art that doesn't result in like any kind of monetary success is like kind of a, a myth because if no one's paying attention to it, then why is it important? Even if it takes a long time for people to pay attention to it. Um, Whereas here, like he still is sort of acknowledging the reality that like artists need to be able to make a living. Um, and and his like definition of art still includes like, or, or well, I guess it's more that his definition of art, it puts a lot of emphasis on like not changing your work um, in order to be profitable. Yes, his big thing when, when if you get into the sort of the commerce portion of the book is he the idea that for every step that a piece of art passes between a creator putting it on a page and a reader reading it it sort of dilutes the product either monetarily and also in terms of like the content itself right um yeah i i do think he's very enthusiastic about like the the quote-unquote pure artistic vision in a way that uh, I guess I guess I just don't feel that same passion. Maybe because I recognize that so many of the comics that I love are collaborative efforts that are really only possible because of at least two, and usually in in most cases more than that, um, creative voices working together to create the the final product. That I'm kind of like uh, I don't know. There's there's not that many people whose singular artistic vision I'm that interested in, especially if adding in a collaborative voice improves the work yes and you know we've we talked about on the understanding comics episode the idea that you can't make a movie one person can't make a movie right that's pretty much just like an an uh, with incredibly few exceptions and i think that that collaborative nature of it is to its benefit um but yes he does talk about sort of the idea that it's it's all about sort of these motivations that people have different motivations for the things they do, whether they're social or economic or sexual or whatever, but that this creation that exists only for its own sake is art. But he also does sort of recognize that that, that person might not necessarily exist. Right. Yes, he, he <laughs> I will say sort of throughout this, like there are points where I'll be like reading and processing every sort of like, part by itself and i'm just like but what are you talking about though <laughs> in the sort of grander scheme of things whereas what i think maybe that's why i was like how is this really structured because in understanding comics the chapters feel so clear and distinct from each other yeah whereas this is just like he's really just like throwing every single idea he has at the wall almost yeah and you know obviously they're sort of grouped into these different themes but it does it they it feels a little more disparate than understanding comics. Yeah, definitely. Um Yeah, it's definitely like a, a passion project <laughs> and and it shows, I think. Um he moves on to talking about the business of comics, uh, which groups together 
um, creators' rights and what was this uh, this other one that's represented by the dollar sign? <laughs> I think it's sort of here. Let me find the actual exact words he uses, but. I think the general idea is sort of the industry innovation. Right, exactly. that's but right. So the the oh, business yeah. of comics Woof. might be reinvented so as to better serve producer and consumer alike. Um, so do you just want to do like a little rant about <laughs> the current state of <laughs> to, the comics? To industry? go off? <laughs> yeah, because so where we're at right now in 2000 is sort of, he, he says from 94 to 98 is sort of when the, the bottom fell out of comics in terms of monetary success and mainstream recognition. Yeah, it's really interesting to me because in 2000, as he's writing from his view, he's basically like the direct market is like in the terminal phase <laughs> right now, um, where where to his view, like, yeah, the entire direct market of like retail stores selling, like getting from distributors who get from publishers and then selling to the customers is kind of like in its death throes from his perspective. And and he's kind of like the way there's ways that like the direct market can survive and even like thrive. But that uh, basically he's like he's saying that the system of delivering comics from creators to readers is no longer serving the best interests of either readers or creators. Which I would say is true. Yeah, I, I would say is true as well, because I think the irony of it is that now we have like digital comics delivery through services like Comixology is like the, the really big one. Um, and, and there's like more subscription model services as well. But it feels like the industry itself is doing everything they possibly can to prop up the direct market system. Um which like I have, uh, you know, I have a lot of affection for many of the local comic shops that I have been a patron of over my years collecting comics. Like I love the, the idea of the local comic shop and I don't want to see it go away. But I think as far as like the, the concerns that he identifies with like attracting new readers, being an accessible space, like things like that, there's still a lot of shops that are not really very good at it. Um, and even if the shops themselves are good at it, like he, I'm going to try and find this specific part, but basically he's like describing the state of the industry after the bottom has fallen out and the state of like comics generally and talks about how they now cater to like the few like ultra hardcore fans who are still there after the bubble yes. has burst. And, and because they do that have become basically like indecipherable to new readers and yeah, that almost, uh, if I can interject for a moment, certainly. that almost makes me think of wrestling, which is was another thing that right around the time this was written was having huge mainstream success that it had never really seen before and then would never really see again. Because basically the exact same thing happened where it started, you know, at the time everyone was into wrestling, like it was a very mainstream thing, especially among young people. And then around, you know, 2003 or so, when like, you know, The Rock was gone, Stone Cold was gone, some other people were gone, it just, it stopped being mainstream. And it started, and it sort of became about the diehard fans. And at that time, you did have other promotions set up, which sort of catered to the diehard th fans. But I think one of the big flaws of WWE, and maybe this applies to Marvel and DC too, which is like, they never stopped... They, they are still always trying to cater towards this 
mainstream audience, which doesn't really exist anymore. Yeah, that uh, I think that really hits the nail on the head as far as like the the issues of the like the big two trying to prop up the direct market system. Basically, like what all the the kind of evidence shows, uh, and and what like most of the anecdotal stuff shows, is that people like new the long and the short of it is new readers aren't going into shops aren't like finding what they want when they do go into shops all the problems that he identifies in this chapter but instead of um like really doing anything proactive and i'm not just talking about like digital distribution which both of the big two publishers do although they charge basically the same amount for digital comics as they do for print comics but that's that's just kind of like one example of the ways in which the publishers are more interested in maintaining kind of the ecosystem as it is now than they are in almost like saving their own skins by drawing in a new audience. Um, because like the notion that you should pay the same amount for a print comic as a digital comic to me is insane. Um, and, and, you know, Scott McCloud kind of says the same thing in in reinventing comics but but they're charging because they don't want to lose the goodwill of the the brick and mortar shops and if all of a sudden brick and mortar shops are selling comics for 3.99 but you can get them online for 1.99 or for 99 cents or things like that like in theory they would see a a hit except they don't see a hit because the comics that they sell online uh, even if they sell them at a discounted price, are still being written for that same core group of fans. So it doesn't matter because, like, outside of the people who are already interested in comics, no one knew it's like really buying comics. It, yeah, it's. A, I feel like I could go on for hours about this, but yeah, I don't think there really is a person. Well, I don't know. Maybe there is that. There's a person who like is into comics, but would only get them if like they were well maybe that's not true sort of the idea that like is there a person who would be into comics if they were less expensive i think that's definitely true that there would be i yeah so i think it's true that there would be and i also think that if right now comiXology or or whatever other digital service dropped the price of every single comic on it to 99 cents they would see a, a boom of sales that would last for like a few months while all the people who already buy comics from Comixology like went on insane spending binges <laughs> so <laughs> now that all the comics are insanely cheap and then like would sustain for a little while while all the people who, you know, who are more like me who like have Comixology accounts don't buy digital comics primarily but would go to take advantage of like these insane sales but then once all the people who already buy comics had like finished their huge binge, it would just like become completely unsustainable because then like sales numbers would probably normalize a fair bit, at least in terms of like um, actual like profits, if not unit numbers. Like I'm sure people would buy more comics because they were cheaper as, as McLeod describes, but it would still end up being the same net amount of comics because I don't think that that would actually draw in that many new readers because there's like a huge basically like publicity issue and an access issue in terms of just understanding the stories that are being told in mainstream superhero comics at least yeah and that that sort of makes me think of my wrestling comparison as well because like you know there most people probably don't know that like there is like 
good wrestling <laughs> or like <laughs> that like alternative is because yeah because for comics most people comics is marvel and dc and for most people wrestling is wwe and so if you show them something that's different and that's really good they'll look at it and be like whoa that's really cool but i but it's only a small subset of those people who will then like sort of latch on to the medium as a whole afterwards yeah, I think that's exactly right. Like, I can think of plenty of people who are, like, not really comics readers who I have, like, introduced to a comic that they, after, like, some cajoling read and enjoyed, but they've never then subsequently expressed any interest in reading another comic. And I don't think that's because, like, there's there's not a lot of interest or that there's, like, any particular aversion to comics so much as that it's, like, it's not scratching an itch for those people that can't be scratched just as easily by easier to access and cheaper forms of entertainment. Yeah, and I mean, like, in the last 10 years, obviously, like, superheroes are insanely huge. Like, I mean, I think they really boomed in the 2000s as well. But then obviously, like the MCU, it's like, that's like, that's sports. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that it's... is like the dominant form of entertainment in in movies. And so I don't think that the appetite isn't there. Like you can see like people are into it. Like people are into the lore. People are into like getting really specific on like, and it's like people are into Falcon. People are yeah. into like random characters that aren't just the big ones, but because it's packaged in a way that's a lot more accessible, people are just more willing to get into that. Yeah. I do think it's like a real, a condemnation of comics ability to like market themselves that yeah that you can have people excited about a tv show titled falcon and winter soldier which is like <laughs> insane to me like i'm excited for that show and that makes sense to me but the fact that like there's people out there who are like man i can't wait for falcon and winter soldier to come out and yet those or same scarlet people, witch and vision yeah or, yeah anyways yeah it's it's crazy to me that there are people excited about falcon and winter soldier excited about wandavision like can't wait for hawkeye <laughs> to come out but who probably have like never read a comic book or have like read a, a handful of comic books, but like you know their interest in these characters has not resulted in really much of an interest in the in the material itself. I'm sure there are lots of people out there who have like investigated comics or or read a few comics for the first time because of their interest in the other properties, but there's just like a disastrous failure to convert the like insane success of the movies and TV shows into any like movement of the needle really at all um for the publishers themselves to the point that the publishers are almost just like ip farms yeah i mean even for me like someone who is more or less a serious comics fan i have a podcast about comic books <laughs> um like just to use an example like hawkeye it's like I know what that is. I know the comic it's based on. I could have like, been told with, by me that the comic it's based on is really good. <laughs> yes. And with like a Google search, I could find the exact issues that that entailed. And if it like, you know, if it showed up in a Gmail inbox, <laughs> like would I click on it and read it? Probably. But at the same time, I don't, I, I can't even express why it's just like, well, like, yeah, maybe I will like go out and search for that. But, if if you have trouble even like getting me to do that then there's 
should be zero expectation for even someone who's really into the movies because there are so many like different levels of interest you can have that even someone who is like super diehard into the movies like has seen everyone 10 times knows exactly Mm -hmm. about all the characters even they would not necessarily read a comic and even me who is into comics would not necessarily read a specific comic that i know to be good yeah i just want to read the the section uh that i was referring to earlier uh where he talks a bit about the direct market um So he says, the idea that comic stores, distributors, and publishers simply give the customers what they want is nonsense. What the customers wanted, they didn't get, and they left. As I see it, mainstream comics now speak only to the hardcore few who stayed, conversing in a weird garbled visual pig Latin that (laughs) only they can understand, rendering the term mainstream a hollow joke, while the true mainstream, the other 99.9% of the populace, find enjoyment elsewhere. Um, Which I think... Yeah, is a is a very succinct summary of the state of the comics industry right after the bubble popped, and um, like certainly is a, I think still a description of kind of like the general state of Marvel and DC comics right now. Not to say that like nothing good has come out since 1998, uh, which like certainly is not true. I can see hundreds of comics on my shelf right now from Marvel and DC published since that was written that. Uh, I love and are the reason that like I read comics but um, I think as far as yeah the, it, there definitely is like a an overall failure to penetrate uh, popular culture as comics despite the fact that the stories that are inspired by the comics are like one of the biggest money-making enterprises in the world yeah and I, yeah I don't so you would say probably so do you think that it's a case of them trying to appeal to the mainstream and failing? Or do you think it's that they are happy to sort of be in this insular bubble? Because I sort of think like, I think of like crossover events. And it's like, there's no one who's just reading one Marvel comic. And then we'll see that and be like, I need to buy the other one. Mm-hmm. And even for me, again, as someone who's into comics, like if I was following one comic and I saw an issue that like was a crossover or something else, I will like groan. And so like the appeal, the, the goal seems to be to get one or, you know, rather than to get a hundred thousand people to buy one comic, the goal is to get, a hundred people to buy a thousand comics. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I think that if they could figure out a way to achieve the, the, like that, that ideal of having a hundred thousand people buy one comic, um, then they would go that way because if a hundred thousand people buy one comic, then chances are that like a lot of them are going to buy another comic. The problem is that they, and I, I'm not saying that I have a solution to this or that anyone has a solution to this. Um, but there's a challenge in that changing, like changing course to a, a place that would attract more readers isn't anything that's going to happen instantaneously. And it's like expensive to do. Um, so even like, and you might not even know how, like, I don't, yeah, I would have no clue how to like start that process. And yeah. like, you can have good like there's a lot of people where it's like there's a lot of situations where it's like this is obviously a good idea and would accomplish the thing that you say that you want and yet you're doing like the opposite thing because you think that it will accomplish the thing that you're not achieving at all 
yeah like there's there's um i'm i'm basically uh, that that typing was me trying to f- confirm that i had the right person and i do so jerry conway who is like probably best known as the creator of the punisher um and like longtime comics creator like kind of made headlines a few months ago because he proposed like this this way of basically fixing the direct market um and what he said was that so the headline that everyone ran was cancel every existing superhero comic <laughs> which is <laughs> which is what he said um but i'm just scrolling down uh to see what he says yeah he says i'd cancel every existing superhero comic and publish a limited line for a middle grade readership simplify characters and storylines and eliminate every quote-unquote event that requires more than passing familiarity with the basic simplified continuity 10 to 15 titles uh for each publisher for existing readers i'd offer offer separate higher priced graphic novel lines with whatever expanded adult storylines creators and readers wanted to explore. This would be separate, not monthly, not the mainstream. And I'd do everything possible to get my comics, my monthly comics into supermarkets, movie theaters, Walmarts, Target, Costco, and offer subscription services through Amazon. Pursue every alternate distribution avenue possible. The present course taken by the major publishers is a dead end. They're pursuing the wrong readership. There's bigger audiences out there. We just have to welcome them. And basically, I agree with like everything that he's saying there. And I don't think that any of those things are ideas that haven't occurred to like the publishing executives kind of exists, right? Like, I mean, obviously, Superman Adventures is based on a TV show. But like, isn't that basically what Superman Adventures is, where it's like the simplified continuity and like simplified versions of the characters? Yeah, but there's like a degree to which those were still being kind of like marketed at the usual comics fans. And, And I think also kind of demonstrates the point that I'm making my way to, which is that you can do that and it's possible that like in a few years that will become profitable and those 10 to 15 titles will all be selling like 500,000 copies to to kids aged like 8 to 16 but the problem is that in the meantime you cut your number of titles from like 50 down to 10 and then you don't have the expanded audience right away and i just think that the margins for comics are sufficiently thin that if they pursued, they they don't believe that they could do that and like stay in business long enough for it to become profitable. Yeah, but, but at the same time, like, do you feel like that's what they would do if they could? Uh, I think they would. I mean, they're you know, it's it's ultimately a profit driven industry, like, like every other industry. But don't you feel that they would be way more profitable? Like, for example, like Marvel Unlimited. Don't you think that if they cut the price of Marvel Unlimited in half? it would be way more profitable than it is right now. Uh, Not really, no. I think like Marvel Unlimited, if you see how far, like Marvel Unlimited goes on sale all the time for like 60 bucks. If you compare how far 60 bucks gets you in print or even like buying digital volumes compared to the number of comics, like the bang for your buck that you get for paying a $60 for a year of Marvel Unlimited, it's like insane. Like $60 in the physical market will get you like 12 issues. <laughs> yeah um and that's like collected editions like if you're buying new editions off the shelf yeah yeah (laughs) maybe 12 after tax at least for canadian dollars yeah and i don't know maybe it's just my perception of it because it does feel like it's like if if i was paying like a small nominal fee per month to access like all comics then i uh, like part of me was like i would definitely do that 
And also, I did have Marvel Unlimited, like, last year, but then I found myself, like, barely using it, and then was like, well, I just spent a lot of money on not much, and like, getting out of it. Even though, you know, in terms of the raw number of issues I read versus how much it would cost me to buy them or buy the collected editions, it probably was still, like, you know, still a lot of bang for my buck, but I feel like even movies went through this recently where you know, 10 years ago, it made a lot more sense to pirate things than it did now. Yeah, it does now. It just like, because there wasn't really an easy way to like, access everything you want and feel like it was like at your fingertips in the same way. Now, even if even if a movie can be rented, and it's not on Netflix or Prime or whatever, I'll still rent movies for five bucks, just because it's so much easier than it was. Yeah. Uh, and like easier than pirating in some cases. Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah, I. Th- so I think part of the problem is that like that you have such an easy point of comparison where it's like okay, um, if I'm paying like sixty bucks a year for uh, uh, Marvel Unlimited and my Netflix subscription is nine dollars a month, which works out to like just over a hundred dollars, am I? am I getting only double the value out of my Netflix subscription? Like I think most people would say they get way more value out of that, like hundred and whatever dollars for Netflix than they do out of a $60 for a Marvel unlimited subscription, unless they're like a hardcore reader. Who, exactly. Yeah. So I think, I think it comes back down to like the accessibility issue where, and obviously when we're talking about a service like Marvel unlimited, it's not a question of accessibility in terms of being able to, read the comics you want to read it's a question of being able to like make sense of the comics that you want to read like right. if someone tells you oh you should check out like you liked endgame you should check out um infinity gauntlet if someone has never read a comic and reads infinity gauntlet like <laughs> there's so much going on like the the main story generally you can follow but there's so much other things happening where it's like who's adam warlock they probably know who silver surfer is but maybe even then they might be like who's this silver guy like obviously this adam warlock guy knows thanos like why have i never heard of him before did they fight when did that happen and there's nothing like you basically have to like get your your hand held for a while or be able to do or willing to do a lot of like googling and research to figure stuff out um and i think when when the alternative is like well if you go on disney plus they already have all the movies there for you in like the order you're supposed to watch them that just seems like a more reasonable undertaking than than comics where there's like always another thing to go back and check out or like a concurrent storyline that also is referenced where i just think people it, it, it takes a certain amount of experience to get a sense of what you're interested in reading and what you're not without actually like reading it <laughs> And and it's hard to cultivate that sense without like losing interest because there's so much of it and like not really a clear way to way to tackle it. Yeah, I think the, the but you hit on sort of like the idea of clear delineation points almost is a again, I'm going back to the wrestling comparison because I'm sort of just now realizing like how intertwined they feel. But with wrestling, one of the reasons I think that it's hard for people to get into wrestling is because of that sort of active continuity that is ongoing. Like, even, like, you know, WrestleMania, you could call, like, the season finale of, like, the wrestling season, like, a year's worth of storylines, basically. But it doesn't even really get used that way anymore, where, like, 
you won't necessarily have like the biggest matches or like you know the big ending to a giant feud happen at wrestlemania the way it probably should which is another example of just like you're just leaving money on the table um but yeah i think the the fact that it's ongoing and that there's 50 years of backstory and like if you miss a week then you could like just get left in the dust i think for most people it's like why bother yeah and and i think there's also like that's that's the kind of general perception of comics is or especially like the big two publishers obviously is that it's like well is it even worth the effort of like getting into because i know there's like all this backstory there's all this like continuity when really like the the approach to continuity at least for the past 10 years and maybe longer has been like pretty open-handed in terms of like that stuff's important if it's important to you but in terms of like understanding most of the stories like there's a degree to which like scott is right when he talks about like the the like garbled pig latin (laughs) that only like hardcore fans understand like i think there is a, a degree of that but i also think that there are like new reader friendly titles where if you're okay not necessarily getting like every single reference or easter egg it's not going to significantly impact your ability to enjoy the story and like if you're willing to to push through it then there's like a lot of good stuff waiting to be discovered but it's the fact that again and again this is like the extent to which the publishers uh and the the industry aren't serving the readers or the the creators the fact that the responsibility falls on the readers to put themselves in a position where they can understand the story that's being told to them is just like bad storytelling and bad business and and even if it's not necessarily exactly the case the fact that like that's the perception of it or that's the feeling that people get when they read it means that like there's there's a system failure and it's not on the reader yeah i think and yeah i just i don't know what the answer is i feel like i don't know like it it does feel like there's something missing that like because comics are such an easy to consume medium and like you know a kid can read a comic or an adult can read a comic and like it's a very you know it's not like there's a high barrier to entry in terms of just picking something up and reading it but it does feel like there is some kind of barrier to entry in terms of actually like getting people to pick it up yeah um yeah, it's it's the kind of thing where like if you think too long about it, you just kind of get discouraged. And the reality of it is that like if if someone had thought of a solution, then we would have a solution. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Like, I it's it's it, the reason it's so frustrating. I think at, like it comes through when McLeod talks about it. I think it probably comes through when I'm talking about it, and when a lot of other people talk about it is it's just frustrating that uh, it feels like the the whole industry is like straining to keep things the way they are when it feels so clear that something needs to change but but then also the fact that no one can figure out exactly what that change is at least like no one can figure out anything that's like can't miss and like you can't really afford with the way like the state of the comics industry at least for the big two you can't afford to try anything that's not like a sure yeah, you thing can't, you can't afford to swing and miss exactly now that's like we're talking very doom and gloom but i really think it's like fairly important to stress that we're talking about like marvel and dc and their like mainstream superhero lines like the reason that 
Jerry Conway is talking about middle grade readers as the the target audience is that like the industry is huge in those demographics, not in um like the big two publishers yeah like daft pilkey uh best known as the creator of captain underpants actually i shouldn't say that anymore because he's now probably best known as the creator of dog man which is a graphic novel and which like the the like book scan analysis of dog man is that just dog man titles outsold marvel dc and image combined for collected editions last year combined (laughs) so it's like comics are fine marvel and dc are in bad shape uh yes and and even comics are fine yeah and even what scott talks about where like i think he is sort of like at this inflection point of the industry where it went up sort of as he was coming up you know like we've talked about fantagraphics and eclipse and whatever like the proliferation of small independent publishers was a very real thing in the 80s and then during this sort of downturn time it again contracted with the exception of image and now i feel like you know it's not like there are a ton of publishers still and it's not like those publishers have a huge audience but neither did the 80s publishers back in that time either like i do think in terms of having alternative and like independent publishers it does seem like things are in a good shape yeah there's definitely not like a paucity of publishers either like uh just to just like off the top of my head in addition to the three that we've already mentioned like dark horse oni boom uh idw fantagraphics i think you already said like archie is somehow still going strong (laughs) uh humanoids is they they mostly publish translated stuff but that's just like a handful like i'm sure i can turn around and spot at least three more on my shelf here let's see i said boom already yeah top shelf first second yeah, there's there's like tons of tons of publishers out there that are options if a creator doesn't want to go the big two route. And of course, like Image as like a haven for creator owned stuff has really only grown since the early days. I thought it was kind of funny that he <laughs> was sort of like, and uh, I'm sort of disappointed in the Image guys. <laughs> yeah, well, I think what sort of what he talks about is that um, that for Image it was more about the sort of economic freedom yeah. than it was about the artistic freedom. Yeah, dollar dollar bill, which certainly. Uh, yeah, it it's. I just have a hard time like faulting that. I guess he he's like we've said he's very into like the high minded, um, like artistic ideal. But I think it makes just as much sense to go out on your own for for the economic reasons and like that's basically why alan moore went independent as well like he was never really concerned with i mean he has a lot to say about the quality of work that's being put out at marvel and dc now but that's not why he broke with them he broke with them because they screwed him on a deal the creators right stuff i think is probably the area where they've made like the biggest steps not in terms of like marvel and dc changing their practices really but um in terms of like the options that are available for creators who don't want to have their stuff owned by other people or who at least want to like get their their kind of share of the pie uh in their creations i think like image is obviously a huge one dark horse does lots of stuff like that idw does lots of stuff like that so i think there's definitely options out there and these days it's like if you have an independent comic and you can sell like 14,000 issues of it or 10,000 issues of it even, um, 
then you're probably making as much money as you would be if you were if you were making a, like a corporate work for hire comic that was selling like 80,000 issues. So I th- yeah, it's it, I think the independent scene has come a long way in terms of enabling creators to be self-sufficient and make a living um working on books that don't sell like those those same numbers that the corporate titles do the problem is that you still kind of have to make your name in corporate comics in order to ensure that you have a big enough following that when you launch your independent book you're going to sell 15,000 copies a month and and like that's what you need to do in order to pay your artist and pay your bills and like all that stuff yeah and that's something that i was sort of thinking about when he talks about the whole digital delivery thing like the idea of like small payments that are driven by creators like that is definitely a thing that has become more prevalent in the last five or ten years um and then like you say i think the big change um in industry in general is how uh, you know creative industries is that the mainstream has now become a jumping off point for creators rather than vice versa i guess like so it's now in the old days it would be like a writer wants to get noticed so he can work for marvel and now it's a writer wants to work for marvel so people will notice him and he'll be a note and maybe this doesn't apply to comics in the same way that i'm thinking of but like someone wants to get noticed at a mainstream publication because the big problem right now is not publishing options but exposure and so they can join a mainstream publication, get noticed from that, and then like once they've been recognized for their quality of work, they can become independent and have a Patreon. Like I'm thinking of podcasts right. here, amazingly. Like, like you can get noticed by getting picked up by a network, and then once you're big enough that you don't need the network anymore, you can break with them and start like getting paid by people directly for your content. Yeah, I think it's a bit more of a like a two way street these days. I think the like the most common sort of path is someone starts off you basically at this point to break into the industry you have to either be like making an independent comic whether it's just for your portfolio or or like you're losing money or whatever nobody's first gig is like working on a corporate comic so so nowadays it basically goes you work on like some independent thing you sell like 8000 issues a month uh you get critical acclaim that gets you like a Marvel or a DC book. You work in like the corporate system for like five years. Uh, you have like a good run on like Batman or Spider-Man or something like, like, you know, you, 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 you have books that are basically like indie titles that are at the, the big two publishers until you get kind of a crack at like, maybe it's a dream character that you always wanted to write or whatever. And then once that run is done, it's like, all right, now I'm launching like three creator owned series. And, and I feel confident that like, there's going to be a readership there. But I think it can like, I think it used to happen more and can still happen that like someone's first indie comic accidentally is kind of like a huge deal. (laughs) Um, And and they only have to like really come over to the corporate side if they like really like corporate comics and are like, well, they're offering me a chance to write Daredevil. Like I've always liked Daredevil. I guess I'm gonna <laughs> guess I'm gonna do that. And even right. like speaking of Daredevil, like Chip Zdarsky is the current writer on that. He's got like a really weird path into comics where he first got like noticed as the artist on Sex Criminals, which was a book Matt Fraction was writing who was a guy who had made his name at Marvel and then launched a bunch of indie titles. 
but then it became like clear through like interviews and and just like all kinds of stuff that like Chip Zdarsky has a background in writing. He's like a funny guy. So then he gets a chance to write like Howard the Duck and it goes well. So they let him write Marvel 2 in 1, which was like uh, a series about the thing and uh Human Torch and that goes well. And basically like he just he just keeps like doing his jobs well and getting handed bigger and bigger titles and He's already done a couple other creator-owned things, but like I'm sure when he's done on Daredevil now, he's at the point where he's gonna he's gonna be able to announce a bunch of creator-owned stuff and be very successful with it. Okay, I think, I think we yeah, I think so too. I, I think we basically also covered the next chapter about public perception. Uh, other than to ask, yes, he he sort of talks more about like it's more of a historical chapter as well. Like he talks about sort of like indecency legal yeah, challenges in like the, of 50s, the innocent. creation of the comics yeah creation of the comics code yeah like which that. uh is like very interesting stuff but like very well trod ground uh that he covers pretty much thoroughly uh and i don't feel the need to say too much about my only question for you is uh did you ever have a comic on the syllabus for any university course you took or were you aware of any opportunity to take a course studying comics maybe not a course studying comics directly i'm trying to remember what it would have been but i think almost certainly i did take some kind of course that had that and then you know also like i was a business major which is going really well thanks for asking (laughs) but I, i definitely no question there were people i knew especially people in english who were reading graphic novels for yes classes. uh you famously have a friend who graded uh, papers on the killing joke uh <laughs> what what was that line oh that's such a good question you can see talking i'm never gonna be able to find that but there's a line about the Joker. It's and it's the literally the society yeah, is. It's literally the he's scary <laughs> because he thinks crime is funny. Uh, yeah, but like unironically. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, oh, it's that he's the sanest one of all. Is that? Uh, oh, yeah, I think that's something right. like that. Which is like Grant Morrison has this like uh, pet like concept that the Joker's power is super sanity and that that's why he's so crazy or appears crazy. <laughs> anyways. Yes, I was an English major. I think in my last year, they like were just about to start offering a new course that was like all comics. Uh, but I, I never had the good fortune to read one academically. Yeah, definitely. Like, I think around the time we were kids, I mean, and Scott McCloud talks about this, where it's like, comics can be, you can think about <laughs> them. It's like, isn't this interesting mm. that now we're reading comics and that's very interesting. Yeah. Anyways, we can move on to the diversity section, which honestly is a, another area that I really don't have much to say about because uh, you could publish this chapter like verbatim today and uh, it would yeah, be like really the could. exact same. It's it's a tough it look. Is, yeah, it is uh, a tough look. Where, yes, he's like, it's like, yeah, they're... Like, there's a lack of good role models for minority creators and female creators in comics. Like, there is institutional bias against them. Um, and, yeah, I, I think I liked what he said. Uh, it's a little more new, like, because, you know, there was obviously that whole thing in Zot where he got into it with people on the letters page about uh, his portrayal of, like, uh, minorities for the most part. And where he he does talk about um like he what he says at that time is 
It's like, we don't need more people telling us what minorities, like, we don't need more white people saying what minorities think. We need minorities telling their own stories. I think he does definitely reiterate that. But he also sort of adds, like, it's not, like, it's not that no one who isn't white should ever write a black character or anything like that. Like, it's not, like, because that's sort of, you know, that can be exclusionary in its own right. But that, you know, the not sort of our, but sort of the idea that the broader industry is uplifted by having all these different voices being able to share their own perspectives. And as he says, if you haven't experienced it, you're just guessing. Yeah. Um, yeah, the the situation as far as uh, like representation in creators, I guess it's pro- like it's pr- probably better now in the mainstream end of things than it was in 2000 as far as like some very high profile efforts to uh, give like minority creators a voice uh, like Ta-Nehisi Coates writing Black Panther is like obviously one of the big uh landmark ones or or at least one of the most kind of publicly covered ones but it also like uh, yeah i'm not sure how much i, I want to wade into it as far as like the health of the industry piece as well because there's like a whole like subset minority of fans uh who feel like the increased level of diversity and creatorship is the reason that comic sales are doomed and not the million other reasons Oof. we just spent like an hour talking about that rocks dude. Uh, <laughs> but uh <laughs> that's such a good uh, take. you you wouldn't believe um I, yeah i, d- I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about it because it's uh it's stupid but then let me uh just jump in here and say that at one point during this discussion scott draws himself as the continent of <laughs> africa <laughs> uh yes um, he... but one one other thing that I think we can talk a little bit about is genre I was just about to say that is the of... one area that he touches on here that I feel has improved to an extent. Yes, definitely. Um, but what I, what I was also curious about and be interested to hear your thoughts about is like he he talks about manga as an example and talks about how sort of like the post-war Japanese comics boom sort of like created all this diversity of genre. And I was sort of wondering, because, like, even in, like, you know, you have shonen manga, but for the most part, like, it's it, they have similar storytelling sort of tropes and a similar storytelling yep. style, but the concepts are so diverse and, like, often the concepts are, like, very heightened and, like, there's a whole fantasy world that exists right. within well, I, these yeah. comics. Like, what what makes it different? Or, like, why haven't american comics been able to accomplish the same thing and they have to some extent but like it's it does feel like especially like for comics marketed at like that age group and that and at young boys that it feels like it's all superheroes yeah and again like i think that if you look at the books that are actually big sellers in the like shonen demographic um there actually is more of that diversity it's really just in the like the mainstream big two where you run into that um but i i also think that like part of the reason that you see some of that diversity is that manga is like more popular than american comics with that age group right um 
possibly in part because of the diversity of genre. Yeah, I guess thinking about it, like cartoon series, like there are a lot more like there's a lot more diversity of concept in like an action cartoon series aimed at young boys that is American made. Yeah, I think it has more to do with the like general widespread reading of comics in Japan as compared to America. Like he talks about it in the book, like he estimates readership in North America at like 500,000. I think that's probably still a pretty fair figure to throw out today uh, just as like a, a, you know, anecdotally, I don't have any like research or anything to back that up. But that that number sounds like roughly right to me, maybe even on the high end. Um and so it's it's all just part of this like narrowing of field that the whole uh like Marvel DC like comics that are that originally were uh, like kids material but have increasingly focused on the same kind of cohort as they've aged up um to the point that you know me a 29 year old and you a uh, soon to be 26 year old are <laughs> sitting here on a podcast talking about um well, I guess we haven't talked about that many big two comics yet, but I'm sure we'll have lots of discussions about characters yeah. that when they we're not we're not opposed yeah, to certainly, it, certainly not opposed to it. And like, you know, I I have as much love for like Silver Age books as the next guy, even recognizing that they're like still for kids. Uh, to to yeah, to an extent, but yeah, I think that's basically the whole problem is that there's a ton of people out there who are like me who at a young age were enthralled with these ideas. Um, when it was like perhaps slightly more developmentally appropriate, shall we say? <laughs> uh, but then, as <laughs> oh, we it's kept... still developmentally appropriate. <laughs> uh, and then, like as I aged up, uh, at the, and really, this doesn't apply to me. This is actually more true of kind of like the previous generation. But as they aged up, instead of like drawing in a new cohort of young people to be interested, they just kept selling to that same demographic as they kept right. aging up. Um, even though they were like kind of dwindling in number. And I think that kind of like narrow focus is, is a big part of why we don't see that same diversity, at least. Yeah. And I mean, at this point, I don't, I don't know how much that's ever going to change. Like Marvel and DC have made their entire corporate identity and company history about being like the superhero publishers. Well, yeah, especially Marvel at this point, like, yeah. Like we said, the the Marvel movies are like one of the most profitable entertainment enterprises ever, if not the most. Um, so, you know, that's not changing anytime soon. But I, I think even, yeah, I do think that the, the genre offerings overall have improved, particularly with like the sort of image golden age that we're in, I guess, still kind of. There was like a real few years there where it seemed like image was really on and they had uh a lot of books that were very good that were not superhero books but like by and large i would say they were still mostly sci-fi books um like ed brubaker has kind of carved out the niche of doing crime books i guess yeah. greg rucka also kind of is in that uh, like that mold dead. as well yeah like horror horror books fantasy books um Genre. Like definitely, yeah, definitely, still lots of genre stuff. I think some of the more like like slice of life or just sort of like you know the the stuff that defies, I guess, genre classification beyond just sort of like drama or dramedy yeah. or like a movie. Like, yeah, or or like I'm thinking of like 
you know, you go walk into a bookstore and there's like the quote unquote literature section where it's like, yeah, exactly. That stuff still doesn't really have like a home per se, even an image, like it's all still genre stuff. When I think of the stuff on my shelf that I would describe as like just fiction or drama or literature or whatever, it's all from like small press publishers or like, you know, Fantagraphics again would be one of the big places i think idw does some of that stuff anyways yeah th- there's dw oh boy <laughs> yeah i'm just uh just turned around to do a little <laughs> do a little scan but yeah there just like has never been a marvel book whose genre would best be described as fiction and i just don't see a day ever coming when that's true that like it's not yeah. primarily Even if it like it's kind of like the whole thing that people like to talk about Marvel movies now. I just feel like forever it will not be like they'll never put out a crime book. They'll put out a book that's like it's like a crime book, but with superheroes. Yes. And Scott kind of talks about that as well, where like he's like, yeah, comics like where like Marvel house sort of creators like they made a Western, but it still feels like a superhero story. Like it still uses that the same like technique. Yeah, the visual language. Uh, yeah, I was I haven't read that book. I was a little curious to check it out to see if I would like find that noticeable at all. I'm talking about like at an even more base level where like, Peter David had a long successful run on X Factor, which was like a detective book. But all the characters were like X Men characters. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, X-Factor Investigations. I know exactly, yeah. It's it's not even that like, hey, this detective story really has like some of the stylistic trappings of superhero stuff. It's literally like, oh, these characters it's are the superheroes. superhero stories. The superhero story has some of the stylistic trappings of the yeah, detective story. exactly. But yes, and so then I think pretty much we're on to Scott explaining to us <laughs> what, how computers work. <laughs> i i have yeah so i was nine years old when this book came out um i'm curious like how much at the time the layperson needed some of this stuff explained to them i assume like a fair bit but i don't certainly in the history of computing and like you know the the sort of whole like arpanet thing and how it was at universities and all that stuff might be a slightly foreign concept to some people yeah i will say like yeah every every example he shows of computer generated art in this these wow. chapters i'm like we sure have come a long way <laughs> yeah that's uh it's 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 certainly a lot but yes he sort of he talks about these sort of uh these assumptions as he puts them for how the world is sort of going to proceed in the digital age which i think are very much on point um So the things he talks about are, he says, the growth of a new generation utterly at home with digital media. And then pretty much the accompanying illustration is basically a kid playing with an iPad. Yeah, I I was like, he he talks about e-readers at one point. And I was like, whoa, (laughs) like, did they know that e-readers were coming in 2000? I think so. Like, yeah. And part of this, like, it, it feels a little like... Maybe we're sort of like applying like a more like '90s sentiment, like mentality towards it than like 2000. It's like the internet was like already very much a thing in 2000. And yeah, like but the iPod existed. Did it in 2000? Maybe 2001, but 
in the general time frame, yes. I guess mp3.com existed, so <laughs> certainly can't have been far off. Yeah, I I find this this particular like especially when he talks about like the the digital production chapter it, I feel like quaint is the best word to describe it now where he's like check it out my daughter's figured out that you can do these like spiral things <laughs> I like that part I I mean I like it fine too it's just kind of like yeah it's it's definitely I think the stuff that shows its age the most or where he's like imagine if you had swirls in the like apply to the background <laughs> yeah. it's like yeah he it was did, did photoshop exist <laughs> so he talks specifically about photoshop at some point does he he talks now he talks about kid pics he does talk specifically about photoshop and uh and about its applications but yeah i think i think that's basically what he's saying is like imagine if you used photoshop on a comic and i guess it speaks in to an extent to his foresight that it's like well yeah those are, effects are like commonplace now and like a lot of artists do like a lot of post-processing work in photoshop or yeah. are like mixed media artists where they'll do part of the work in physical media and then do like finishing in photoshop or are like 100 percent digital artists um that yeah it's it's why quaint feels like the right word because it, because he was so right i guess <laughs> yeah and in some ways like he really nails it and like he starts off really strong because he's like it's like a radical realignment of industrialized economics, wearable computing, AI, VR, a universal yeah. translator. Like all of it is very on point. And then like, and then he goes on to be like, I'm kind of going to try and ignore like the physical box that is a computer because like that's going to change, which I think is a good idea. But then some of the stuff he goes on to talk about is a little bit like it's, it's dated. We do get a Nine Jack Nine cameo in this chapter, though. Really? Scott as that. Nine Jack Nine on page one fifty two. Oh, maybe I just didn't process that as being Nine Jack Nine. Where? Oh, maybe do we have different page numbers? I don't. I I don't think so. Fifth panel, like right in the center of the page, the oh, monitor. That's totally a Nine Jack Nine reference. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I feel like that's uh, like verbatim. Nine Jack Nine has his famous circuit board eyes. That's true, but he doesn't always have the circuit board eyes if it's not close up. But yes, and so I think, like I kind of said earlier, like I think the people of this generation, especially the people who were like you know very into what technology could do in the future, they're sort of they see it as this new frontier for experimentation. But I think it more becomes about like the old front tier like delivered and produced in different ways rather than like being about like totally changing like how it's like it didn't the, the internet didn't change the way we like view video but it did change the way that video was delivered to us and the way yeah. we consumed it yeah and i think as well that he kind of like one of his big shortcomings in the in the digital delivery chapter is his failure to anticipate the ways that like corporations would just still be the ones who are in charge of the delivery methods like yeah. he he was foreseeing something a bit more decentralized where like 
uh, he t- and he talks about it a little bit with like the micropayment stuff too, where he's like, if there was some sort of service that he let you do this, but they've all failed, and it's like, well, yeah, because guess what? Like the banks are going to do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and like I, I just think he he didn't have the foresight to realize the extent to which the corporations that already handle those things in like the atomic world would also be the organizations that would handle it in the uh, bit world or would acquire the people who did it successfully in the bit world. Yes, definitely that. Um, yeah, I think it. I think it was just a matter of like at this time, big companies weren't really like on the forefront in the same way. Um, also I think he, he does sort of, and again, this is also very much of the time, like he sort of underestimates ads because at the time ads were like so obtrusive and like terrible. Um, and I feel like that is almost like what he, what took the place of like a micropayment, like rather than paying one cent to view a website, we, it just shows you an ad (laughs) Yeah, that's the equivalent. But he also does talk about like some crazy stuff. Like he talks about, he's like. What if there was a wallet of code that was like a sort of digital <laughs> currency? And I was like, whoa, like, did you just invent cryptocurrency, bro? <laughs> that, yeah, there was a section. I'm not sure if it was the same one, but there was a section where I was like, Scott, are you, <laughs> are you investing in Bitcoin? Because maybe you should yeah. be. Uh, but I think I think the one of the big thing. Well, I, there, there are a few things that you could point out as like big things he missed, but I think one of the most fundamental, like, sort of, not misunderstandings, but mis sort of predictions of the way that the internet would sort of eventually align itself. Like, he's, what he talks about is like, it won't matter if you're small because there's no battle for shelf space because there's an infinite amount of stuff, which is like so off base. It's like more than ever. It's like, it's now just like, it's not that it's shelf space per se, but it's prime placement on like the front display case because there are infinite shelves. And so if you're not sort of able to place yourself in a prominent position, then that's where you run into trouble in terms of getting your content noticed. Yeah, I think the whole like the whole advent of uh, like the search engine not having happened yet, uh, it seems like at least is is well, a big thing here because 2000. Well, but yeah, but he's talking about like the primary means of navigating the internet yeah, being like, like the portal sites. Portals, yeah. yeah. Where I'm like, man, I feel like if you understood how Google was going to work, you yeah. would recognize the extent to which those sites are going to end up like not being important. Although you could say that like a site like Reddit is basically sort of serving that function and like social media sites to an extent serve that function based yes, on who you follow. But those are more about like, those are like, it's like, that's, that's like a central platform. And then the like all the content is sort of like spidering off of that central platform Mm -hmm. whereas i think his perception of the internet is more like a sort of interconnected chain where one site leads you to another site which leads you to 10 more sites which leads you to 10 more sites right like i i think he was like very on point to say that like on on the internet to hear about something is to know where to find it um, like, I think that's a good way of kind of describing how easy to access information on the internet is. Right. Um, but I think like, I think he failed to understand the degree to which like, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I flip flop a little bit. Cause I'm like, 
on the one hand, like YouTube exists and there you have like creators who become like as profitable for themselves as like any movie star. And yet at the same time, those are like the few who rise to the top of like a huge platform where like most people, if you're like, do you want to watch, uh, like, would you rather watch a random Netflix show or a random YouTube video? Like the odds of hitting on something that you're going to be entertained by <laughs> seem a lot higher to me, at least on Netflix, where like, like, yeah, it's possible for someone who's small and independent to survive. But first, you have to like distinguish yourself from the hundred million other small garbage <laughs> things. That yeah, are, I mean, like, like I also don't even think like even people our age, like I feel like we almost underestimate or like we have a different perception of what YouTube is because like the way that we consume YouTube is just different um, compared to like the younger generation. Whereas like, I, like, you know, especially kids, like we'll just <laughs> they'll crush YouTube. bro. <laughs> uh, it, yeah. It is true that I rarely feel older than when, that i i hear or see people get excited about something on youtube and like yeah that's just a, like a totally different world than even us who are like you know relatively young and technologically savvy like it's just being consumed in a different way and scott talks about that like it's just going to keep changing and like especially like we're like we're the last generation who really like had any chance of growing up in like a slightly less digital world. Yeah. Like if you grew, if you were born after YouTube was created and like became popular, then it's just like your life is just fundamentally different. Yeah. Or yeah. Like, even though it's only 10 years in my case, like, the, yeah, I th I do think there's an extent to which like, I remember when my parents didn't have a cell phone and like, we're so far past that point now that I, I think like, even I might be at like the, the tail end of that generation in terms of like people whose parents didn't have cell phones yeah <laughs> or like who who remember when their parents didn't have a cell phone right. let alone like remember when, when they, they didn't when have they a had cell phone a, yeah, yeah exactly like i didn't have a cell phone until i was in university and that feels crazy to me now yeah i mean like well we don't need to get into family history but i feel like that was like a big thing <laughs> at the time was like when i was like 15 i was like why don't i have a phone <laughs> and, and then like because I'm the youngest sibling and, you know, my oldest sibling is like 10 years older than me. It's just, it's like, it's so drastically different. Mm -hmm. And then even like, and then again, like someone 10 years younger than me, it's so drastically different. The one thing, yeah. So like, I, I do feel like f sort of those formal innovations Scott was talking about, like they have taken place, but they haven't really taken place in comics. It seems like is the big thing. Well, yeah, I think I think what he also failed to foresee was the extent to which web comics would be viewed as like an inferior product. Um, that like because they are free, because like, uh, I I mean, in in a, to an extent, it's the um like the saturation of them combined with the Sturgeon's Law of ninety percent of everything being crap, like. There's way more web comics that come out in a month than there are physical comics or like corporate comics, I should say. Um, and because they're not necessarily concerned with making money and and are more about like expression, 
like the standard for art is lower the standard for writing is lower generally i would say maybe that's not fair but and and like this is probably yeah it's it's hard to say because like i know that there's a, a thriving web comics industry and that there are creators at the top who produce like good stuff and there are unknown creators as well who who produce good stuff but there's so many bad web comics out there well, even like, the webcomic is like so much less a thing now than it was like 10 years ago or 15 yeah, years ago. Yeah. I just think like the extent to which like comparing something to a webcomic in the world of comics is like a pejorative or to say yes, that something looks definitely. like it's like straight off of deviant art is a pejorative. Like it's that amateurish feel to it. Yes. That I don't think he he predicted the extent to which like the reputation of web comics would be damaged even among like comics readers or people who who enjoy comics it's just yeah it's hard it's hard to look at like the art of even some of the most popular web comics compared to the the art that you'll find in like a corporate comic book even an independent comic book that like if it's been published if it had an editor <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah there's like a, a disparity in quality that is is like hard to get around even with some of the more popular web comics yeah and kind of in the same vein as that um he talks about like when he's talking about sort of his idea of micro payments like the idea that you can get something small and sort of parceled out for a very low price point he's like well the big problem right now is that well he <laughs> he says that people perceive themselves as paying with their time to access things on the internet, which is way not true anymore. And it's quite the opposite. In fact, like he talks about like, he's like, yeah, the human, the human eye can still process information far faster than any website could load it. It's like, dude, (laughs) no, but then, but the thing is that like that paradigm has persisted, even though the change happened, that he, like you know that I think he reasonably foresaw the idea that the internet is a place where you get free stuff did not really change significantly and like even like you know net obviously like it's become it's changed a little bit in the last 10 years as well like you know Netflix and things like that like they've sort of changed the idea that everything is free but I think people are still like I think he's overestimating people's willingness to pay for things online especially things that aren't like established like like netflix is a little different because it's still like warner brothers or whatever like it's still movies from studios and that you saw in a theater yeah that that's kind of what i was like getting at when i was mentioning earlier like he just failed to anticipate the ways in which like the corporate entities of of the physical world would become the same forces that control the digital world in that way like I mean, he talks about it a little bit in terms of like, they'll have a head start because they still are the ones with the resources. But I just don't think he necessarily foresaw how quickly they would like establish themselves as the the sort of controlling voice in that way. And I also think like he really didn't see the subscription model coming and the way like the extent to which like being a collaborative is is beneficial in that way where like good good free stuff now is like i'm I'm also now thinking of podcasts but like if you want a good podcast for free it's probably part of like a network uh 
where they they have like the collective power to yeah. be able to be profitable enough yeah to be profitable enough to offer it for free um but if you want like an independent podcast you're you're probably subscribing to it and i feel like that is like generally true like you could say that that's true of like youtube channels in a lot of cases you could say that that's true i feel like maybe music is the only other place really where like there's a lot of stuff that you can get for free from individual creators right yeah and it's almost like it's like uh, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy sort of thing where like the existence of something like the like when something is published for free that almost like devalues it yeah in the eyes of people but then that's also like the only way to really like expose like get exposed because that's one of the things scott talks about is like a billion people will flock to it if you release something for free but as soon as you like put up that barrier of money people will immediately back away and that's still true like and it's not because it's too difficult to pay for things anymore it's just like that's just what people do <laughs> yeah it's it's funny because he kind of like touches on it as well when he talks about how like once you assign value to something this is when he's like talking about art but basically said he says like if you charge ten thousand dollars for something then people will perceive it as having value because it's worth ten thousand dollars um and i think that really that that same principle is applied to like content online um and and like media generally where if you offer it for free there's kind of an assumption that like well if it was any good i would have to pay for it yeah uh you know as as a icon capitalist icon the joker said if you're good at something never do it for free um anyways i i feel like a lot of people generally kind of like hold that to be true and so if someone is doing something for free there's like a, a sort of assumption that it must not be that good because if it was good someone would be making me pay for it yeah and yeah and again just like like i said that expectation on the internet where it's like you're gonna give me stuff like you gotta give me something for free. Is <laughs> basically I feel like the I'm like nowadays it's like things are becoming increasingly pay gated where it's like you can have this for free, but you know, but you get more if you pay for it. But there is still that very base expectation that most things on the internet you should be able to just get for free in some form or fashion. Yeah, I don't know if I can really think of any sites right now that are like 100% generating their own content and don't have a paywall at any point well like Twitter. I guess the ringer would be the one that I can think of yeah well I yeah but then again it's like the paywalls are in different forms like right yeah there's like there's always something that you can get for free but you can never get everything yeah and I guess I think the paradigm has shifted away from a paywall except like newspapers, which is so annoying. Um, I think it's shifted away from a paywall and more towards a premium, right. I think is the the distinction I would make that people it's not it's less about you can't get to what you want if you don't have if you don't pay for it and more like it's like you can get this and then if you like that, you can get more. I guess well, currently I'm on Bleeding Cool, which would be another site. <laughs> okay, I'm I'm as I'm thinking about <laughs> there, this more and more, more examples, I, but it's not true. <laughs> but but I I understand what you mean. Where it's like a lot of places, like even if 
even if you're giving a huge amount of stuff for free, there's going to be some form of paid, whether it's additional or whatever. Um, I, now, are you at all familiar with John Bois or Boys? Uh, yeah, he doesn't. He d- <laughs> he did that video we enjoy of uh, the um, NBA 2K League, where yes, of course, he, he like keeps putting in full <laughs> draft classes of <laughs> yes. So that is who came to mind for the Infinite Canvas. Like, have you seen like his like chart party and stuff like that? No. So I'm going to send you, I'll send you a quick video, but so he has this series called Chart Party and he he's sort of like used this, it's sort of become his like calling card in terms of the, the visual style of it. But basically he will like present, I'll send this to you and you can just sort of skim through it. He'll present the full sort of presentation is basically like how things are structured like he'll he'll present it all as like one giant piece of work and then like hit the camera so to speak oh, will yeah, sort of like dip in and out of different areas and like different visual illustrations that he wants to add and so that's what came to mind for me when he was talking about the infinite canvas and how like things could be like read in a different way like i think that is a more like more of an execution of what his idea is than anything in comics, at least anything mainstream. Yeah, it made me think of uh, Prezi. Yes, also Prezi. <laughs> I, I, I didn't bring up Prezi, but I did also come to my mind. Yeah, I, so I guess with this, the whole infinite canvas thing, I guess I just don't really understand what the potential that he sees is. Because... I, and I mean, part of that is probably that it's not really like a widely embraced idea. Like he's the only yeah, I person. Guess if you don't develop it, then it never. Yeah. He's like the only person I can think of who's ever like really done anything in the infinite canvas like style. At least but... consciously. And I like, I feel like some of those design principles, like the idea of like sort of that endless scroll has certainly like become more of a thing. Yeah, but it he seems to feel that like there's a real strong possibility for like an aesthetic accomplishment. But when I look at like his infinite canvas stuff, I'm mostly kind of like this is a hassle to navigate. And like yeah. I don't I don't really understand why like you think that looking at this zoomed out adds significantly to the effect of it. Like we talked about uh my obsession with chess, his chess comic, mm-hmm. <laughs> where when you look at the whole thing, it's just like it doesn't look like a chess board. Like, it doesn't it, look like a chess piece or something. I don't think so. I'm not speaking from experience here. I'm gonna go to his website and uh, and have a look again. Um, but yes, I know what you mean. Well, it's like if that was being used in some kind of like th- way that like bolstered the aesthetic quality or like that really like hammered home the themes of the comic or something then like it's like okay i can kind of understand why that would be of interest to you but it doesn't really it's just like he's basically like what he says in the book is like you could arrange some panels in different ways it's like wouldn't that be interesting it's like yeah i guess for a guy who wrote two books about comics that's pretty interesting (laughs) yeah like so in my obsession with chess at the very end 
the the panels kind of like coalesce into a chessboard but for most of it like most of the way through it just is like a zigzag and i I, yeah i'm just like what does this what is the aesthetic value that you are perceiving in this because to me there is none yeah i think he i it i honestly think that his interest in it is more from a like this is cool point like i think it's sort of like experimentation for its own sake rather than having any kind of like value added to what the art is and let me flip through and see what he says about it and if there's anything that really hits home yeah well i mean as we all know a comic could be a cube (laughs) i yeah (laughs) i was about to bring that back up and say like i i did lampoon him a little bit by saying like imagine if comics had sound uh and like the, this was the section or one of the sections that he really like came under fire for and and the i guess the digital uh production piece to an extent where it was like what if flash like what if comics started to move and people were like no like the whole point is that comics is not a movie or animation yeah, or you like, said this. What, yeah you are describing like me. imagine if comics became animation and it's like isn't that the whole point that they're not <laughs> animation? <laughs> if you add yeah. in sounds and movement, like at what point does it stop being a comic? I think, yeah, I do think there's a problem with this this section where he starts to confuse readers, at certainly me, and it sounds like you as well, as to like he's been so for like the possibilities of comics, but then it feels like it culminates in like and what's really cool about digital comics is they could be something else, <laughs> like not <laughs> comics anymore. And I feel like that that maybe to an extent is an unfair simplification of what he's saying. Maybe I think I sort of have a general sense. I think maybe so. One of the things he talks about in Understanding Comics, which is what he brings up again, is that like the thing that's really cool about comics is that everything can sort of like every you have every medium at your disposal. So like even the shape of the words or the way the words are written can be like an expression of some sort, which you can't have in movies. And so maybe I think this is sort of latching onto that where he's like, it's like even the way, like the shapes that are made by the panels and the way that you read them can be part of it. And that sort of like even enhances even further the ability of comics to like, express themselves even more because he talks about like when he talks about uh porphyria's lover porphyria's lover he says i was able to reflect the a b a b b rhyming structure and rhythm of each stanza through a zigzag panel arrangement using panel connections blah blah but then like the next thing he it's like oh like I, that makes sense that's interesting but then the next thing he talks about is like in a proposal for the Understanding Comics CD-ROM, I took the staircase approach and was able to enclose each chapter in its own rectangular tile, attach other tiles with supporting information, and gave a thousand plus panels a single shape. It's like, okay. And then like the illustration just like, yeah, like that certainly is a shape. Like it's some connected <laughs> rectangles. It's like, yeah. what was the point uh, of this? I, I feel like this is less about the exciting future of comics and more like, isn't like, data storage cool <laughs> because yeah, or even i'm just like this is a cool idea i had and it's just really weird that like this one cool like it's i think it's 
just that it gets blown up so much because he spends so much time talking about like the concept of comics and like the industry itself and like where that could go in the future. And then he finishes it by being like, here's 20 pages devoted to like a thing I think is cool. Yeah. I'm So I'm looking at the pages right before that, where he's talking about like the, the like one tile basically that is actually 40,000 panels. And it like, as you zoom in, it like comes into focus as like discernible panels that are all connected and right i think i'm i think i might have skipped this page <laughs> he says uh yeah it, for example a giant comic holding forty thousand panels in a square matrix might look something like this it's like a square that looks sort of textured from a distance um when viewed more closely individual panels may become discernible and as they draw closer still uh and become clearer each individual panel may be revealed as a full-size high-resolution color illustration you may wonder how any computer (laughs) now or in the near future could possibly hold this entire comic (laughs) in memory all at once (laughs) it feels unfair to laugh at that i know but (laughs) But it's it's like But yeah, and and then he goes on to argue it shouldn't have to, um, and then talks about how, yeah, like you said, it's just like something cool. He says, by the time individual panels come into view, um, our field of vision will only take in a small part of the whole. Thus, our monster comic may exist as many documents in storage, yet only one in the mind's eye. And it's like yeah i guess like, <laughs> that's, that's true to what end <laughs> like this yeah. seems like it's more it's, a, it's all a big to what end and i think the answer is like to any end you want but he, i don't think he really i, think I just also, don't like, feel like he makes a compelling case for being excited about this at least to me like if i was a comics creator even reading this now i'm not like wow the like when I compare how I felt reading Understanding Comics in terms of like I could feel my brain like unfolding yeah. <laughs> to like reading this and being like, oh, uh, yeah, certainly that is possible. <laughs> like you have said something. I think maybe and like maybe it's just like the way that he like thinks, like he's just thinking of it as like I think he what he's sort of maybe trying to communicate is like well like I don't know where this could lead. But, like, isn't it crazy that, like, something could happen with this in the future? And then everyone else is just like, not really. <laughs> like, I think if, like, he, he uses this the metaphor earlier in the comic of sort of, like, if you started from zero and just told everyone to, like, write a piece of sequential art, like, what would that look like? Like, if you sat a thousand people down and, like, were like, use this, like, make the panels do weird things, then, like you would probably get some interesting stuff, but it just never, like, who wants to do <laughs> Like, who wants to do that as one person by themselves? It's very strange. Um, I am browsing a Salon article that uh, kind of summarizes Gary Groth's uh, takedown and do just want to note for the record that uh, much as Scott makes fun of journalists for doing, the headline is, bang, pow, zap, online comics come under assault from the art form's old guard. <laughs> But yeah, and it's like part, I guess, is that like, that's the way it was portrayed at the time is that like the old, there was the old guard, sort of like the vaudevillians as Scott sort of describes them 
sort of like poo-pooing the new possibilities. But nowadays it seems like it's like, yeah, like I, <laughs> I think they were right. Like your sort of like take on it isn't quite there. Yes, indeed. Um, yeah, it's, it is interesting. Cause like throughout this thing, it seems like one of his big objections is the, like the transition to, or, or like what it seems like he interprets Scott as arguing that like, it would be better or it would be interesting if comics incorporated like more motion and sound. And like, I know he comments on those things and like, I, I kind of just made fun of him about it, but I, yeah, I think this is where he starts to feel like he's being misinterpreted. Like, obviously I don't think he is arguing that comics should become animation (laughs) when they go into like the digital format. But I think it's, there is a problem with the book in that he can be so easily misunderstood and by like so many people. Yeah. And yeah, I I think it's a bit of both really that it's like part of that people are slightly misunderstanding the things he's talking about. And partly that like, Oh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) yeah it just is a book where especially the technology section he seems more excited by the technology than by the implications for comics per se yes i yeah i think it's i think it's just an example of like he had a lot of ideas and he sort of tried to fit them all into like one book or one you know sort of piece of work but I, it, it feels like it's going in a lot of different directions at the same time. Yes, to say the least. Well, uh, <laughs> anything else you want to talk about? Uh, I don't think so. I have to admit, I found this exhausting to read. Uh, yes, it was a real slog for me. I, you know, like I felt like I tried reading it in bed at one point and I like it was like putting me to sleep. And then like. I was really like having to push through. And it's like, it's not that any of it isn't somewhat interesting on its own. It's just like, it just feels a little bit sort of purposeless. Yeah. And kind of like relentless. Yes, certainly. Like it just, it feels like one, it feels like a run on sentence. <laughs> yes. And and there is a degree to which like I have described uh, understanding comics several times as like a textbook, but like this book is really like a textbook sometimes yeah and it's just it doesn't work as well like understanding comics works because it's sort of like each chapter talks about these disparate elements and then it's sort of all like it all comes together over time and it'll sort of harken back to different chapters whereas this feels like it just feels less straightforward than that and sort of more aimless yes um yeah, I'm looking forward to making comics. I think it will be very different uh, from either of the other two. Uh, well, I think it will be back more towards understanding comics a little bit, um, but still still very different. I think it will be a bit more interesting to us. Uh, yeah, I th- I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I th- tend to think of myself as for someone who has never worked in the comics industry uh, or made a comic uh, or known anyone who did um, that I feel like I know a fair bit for like a lay person about the process of creating comics. So I'm very interested to read it and uh, learn about all the things that I had no clue about or don't understand at all. Yeah. And as someone who I, you know, I am into comics, but I don't have nearly the same level of industrial awareness 
as you do. I think it'll be very interesting for me as well. And is so, I mean, obviously we'll get into this on the episode, but is it more about like, is it from an industry standpoint or is it more from an artistic standpoint? I, oh, I think it's more artistic for sure. I haven't read it before, um, but the excerpts that I've seen on it are like about like there, there's this a section I read that was about like storytelling basically or like the role of conflict in, in like telling a story so yeah that i definitely super interesting i think it will be a lot more artistic than industrial uh i i think there will be like an art component to it like a production component but yeah no, i i definitely am thinking more of like the technical process of creating the comic as opposed to like how to like get discovered because he kind of like lampoons that very idea in this uh book yeah, I definitely wouldn't expect it to be like that. I think I more meant it's sort of like in the same way that this book is like focused on the industry in a lot of ways rather than the more zoomed out like comics as a whole and as a medium that understanding comics is. I feel like it'll be closer in spirit to that than it'll be like, I mean, he kind of talks about it. it's like he's not going to tell you what pencil to use. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think I think basically it will be like, uh about like here's how to get the comic so that you can put it into somebody else's hands and like the rest is up to you yeah exactly well that was uh that was our delve into reinventing comics uh, like i said i didn't i i don't think it's all bad really no. i just think that there are some uh there are some issues with it and i think uh we've sort of illuminated that but I, I think it's safe to say that neither of us is like very enthusiastic about it or feels like it's like a must read. No, I, I and since it's hard to find, like I certainly wouldn't like say to go buy this so you can <laughs> listen to the episode or anything like that. <laughs> like, I think it's I think it's very interesting. Like, I'm happy I did read it just because like to hear his thoughts about stuff. But I mean, if I if I had never read this, would my life be significantly <laughs> worse off? No. And I, you know, it's hard. If you, it's, again, I think it's like, if you just wrote Understanding Comics and then you put out another book, then the standards are going to be extremely high. Yeah. I I think it's most interesting as kind of like a time capsule. Um, but de yeah, definitely not anything I would characterize as like essential reading. Well, um, unless you have a, a segment about awards... Uh, no, I did look at the awards briefly. It's just funny to see like where we're kind of getting at in terms of like the comics timeline that like the the Ultimates is out, Ultimate Spider Man is oh, out. That's like, crazy. The Authority, uh, Hundred like... Bullets, Lucifer. Yeah. So I guess like when by the time this was published, like yeah, I, I'm looking at out. 2001. Uh, oh, right, right, right. Yeah. So yeah, X Men, X Men is out, but like Spider Man isn't. <laughs> yeah. That's so crazy. That's wait. That's so crazy that yeah. Ultimates predates Spider Man. Yeah, that's so weird to me. Like Powers is out. That's crazy to me. Preacher is wrapping up. Lucifer is like just getting started. Yeah, it's it's just funny to see like Brian Michael Bendis, Mark Miller, Garth Ennis, um, just the names that are starting to pop up when we started in the eighties is like kind of weird. Yeah. Well, um, and I'm just to share a bit of relevant content. Jim Belushi just tweeted, dying for some ravioli. Same. Uh, and in the spirit of Jim Belushi, we will both be signing off to go eat some ravioli. <laughs> 
Thank you for listening as always. Remember to rate, review, etc. And as for me, I will talk to you another time. <laughs> Classic <Same>. sign off. <laughs>